you can still compete with a few things, you know, one thing or two things that aren't kind of firing mental game, preparation, course, knowledge, drive, like all the areas of golf. But as they start to kind of devolve, if you're not staying on top of them, it's really hard to compete. And that's kind of how I looked at my health. Welcome to episode five of Real Men Do Cry. I'm your host, Jaron Deutsch. With me today is Andrew Jensen, a professional golfer from Ontario, Canada. On this episode, he shares his personal struggles with mental health from his teen years into his career as a pro golfer and how he has used this ongoing battle as a positive in his life instead of a crutch. He is now a major advocate for mental health across Canada, an active public speaker, as well as an ambassador for Bell Let's Talk. Andrew, thank you for joining the podcast. No, my pleasure, man. I'm glad you reached out and I'm glad we made it happen. I first wanted to talk about your story. Tell us more about your upbringing uh, and your journey as a professional golfer dealing with depression. Yeah, so I grew up in, uh, in Ottawa, the capital of Canada. And basically, my dad was a, a club professional, the head pro. So I grew up at the golf course, essentially. So for seven months a year, that was basically the golf season for us. And uh, I, was, I was at the golf course, sun up to sundown. And that was just kind of like a full immersion into the game of golf. And, you know, I was lucky I was afforded access like that. So it's the 10,000 hours principle, like I was just around golf so much that I took to it, like kind of like a duck to water. It didn't come easy. Like I still put in a lot of work. My dad instilled that work ethic in me, but it was just, it was the only thing I loved. And I think looking back, it was you know, I said the golf season for us was seven months, but my dad's work season essentially would be March through November, sun up to sundown. So I'd see my dad basically three months a year. Wow. So I kind of took to golf so I could be around my dad. And that was just kind of it. And my older brothers from his first marriage, they golfed as well. So it was like, oh, they did that. So I should do that. But then, you know, one of the tricky things with golf is you're so result oriented, literally everything you do. It's so, so hard to kind of fall in love with the process, like the kind of sports psychology is, is just focus on your work and your efforts. Golf is is a score. At the end of the day, it's a score next to your name that is your worth. Like you, you rank yourself on a leaderboard. And I think for a lot of teenagers that are really invested in the game and see their future in the game, and I was one of those, it was like, that was my value. My value was my golf score. And if I was doing well, you know, people were patting me on the back and cared about me. And if I was not doing well, it was like a serious conversation with my dad, not in the sense that he was like pressuring me, but he wanted to like dive into why, what happened out there kind of thing to try to help me. But in the teenage brain, you're like, that's not working. It's like, why do you, you're only giving me attention when I struggle. And then you start to kind of, you know, I would wrestle so much like when I was playing bad in a tournament or something like how am I going to talk about this? Like, how am I going to talk to dad about this? Like, oh, great. And like, so far from finish, you know, the round of golf strong. And that basically paired with all of these other things that teenagers go through that, you know, we assumed at the time was just phases. But at the end of the day, I hated myself. Like I looked in the mirror and I, I hated who I saw. I was overweight. I didn't get good. I didn't care about school. I didn't get good grades. And it was like golf was my only thing. And if it didn't go well, you know, my summer potentially could be ruined. And so at at 16, that was the first time that I I tried to take my life. And basically, we just kind of chalked it up to, to teenage, like phases, angst, whatever it was. And I kind of, he was like, yeah, for sure, for sure. Like, that's it. Yeah. Like not really wanting to fully understand it like I do now, or potentially like accept that it was something that was maybe a little bit outside of my control. 
So I just busted my ass and like worked really hard. I lost 40 pounds. I got girlfriends finally by the time I was like 18, 19. I got better at golf and, you know, my grades were better. And it's just like all the things, the external factors were good. So I felt good about myself. But, you know, deep down, I still knew this kind of secret I had that I was still hated who I saw in the mirror. And it's like, you just didn't want to talk about those things at that time. I was 16 in the year 2000. Like we didn't talk about mental health anywhere, like anywhere. And it was just typically like demons, phases, emotions. Like it wasn't something potentially bigger, you know? So I go to college and it was just kind of the same thing, like the same cycle, school, grades, golf. And it's like, I was always going to turn pro. It didn't matter. And I kind of just got through college as quick as I could. And I turned pro at 23. And then it's like, I just went out on this, this journey that was like so exciting but it was so lonely and so isolated and so foreign. And it was just like, how do I deal with these things? And then the pressure is a hundredfold from what it was like as an amateur golfer, where you're playing potentially for your future scholarships or whatever. Now I'm playing with other people's money. And then if I don't play well, I don't get that money to keep playing. So I'm done. It's like play well or find a new job. And when you've literally spent your entire life focused on golf, I didn't think I could do anything else. Like I didn't think I was capable of anything else. Like my whole identity was wrapped up in golf and basically three years of that cycle of just terrible golf, but then like grit determination, getting through it, getting, you know, status back on tour. Like that just happened for three years. And then I had a physical injury. I had tendonitis in my arm in 2010, which just kind of made it so hard to battle back in 2011. And then 2011 was when I tried to take my life twice in the fall, like September, October. And from there is when I started kind of accepting that maybe there was, there was something wrong. Like in 2008, my doctor said, you know, I believe you, you have depression and I didn't want to hear that. I didn't accept that. But then by 2011, it was like shit hit the fan. I needed to dive into getting better. So that kind of work ethic, determination, grit, whatever we want to call it. I use that to like start this healing process, but for whatever reason, something clicked in me that I knew it was going to be an ongoing process. Like I never thought I would get out the other side of this and it would all be okay. Like I knew that the nightmare of being in the hospital and all that would end, but this process of healing and recovery would continue because I had been around and I'd done some work with addictions. So I I saw how that was for people, like it was an ongoing thing. And I mean, I've seen alcoholism in my family and I saw, so I I kind of approached my depression like that. Like it's going to be this ongoing thing that I have, that I deal with, that I manage. And in accepting that, it became very easy to talk about it. And then given the opportunity to talk about it, I just ran with that. I was lucky in Canada that we were getting at the, the start of this conversation in 2010 with Bell Let's Talk when it kind of got off the ground. And for whatever reason, being that kind of quote unquote celebrity gave me attention in 2013 when I started kind of publicly talking about 2012, when I started publicly talking about these things. And then it just kind of domino after domino fell and any any opportunity I could take to speak or write, I took because it was like, yeah, I, I love this. Like I'm putting this effort that I put into my golf game into this conversation and it's unbelievable to think that it's coming up like this will be 10 years since it all happened when it's you know it feels like yesterday but it's just been cool to kind of look at look back at it and think if you want I was kind of one of the the OGs if you will and like talking about mental health in 2012 and 2013 and here we are now in 2020 2021 and it's like a podcast like yourself like there's just there's so many people that want to 
embrace this conversation. And it's, it's amazing. I don't like taking any credit for it whatsoever, but I would always say like in speaking events, like I hope to put myself out of a job eventually. So it's like this conversation becomes so commonplace that we don't need to hire people to talk about it because it's just like we talk about it. So it's been a pretty wild ride. Yeah. In 2008, there was a stigma and there still is a stigma today, but obviously less so. But you felt like that because of how strong the stigma was in 2008, you didn't feel comfortable talking about it in 2011. I I wouldn't even say there was a stigma in 2008. It just didn't, it didn't exist in 2008. Like the stigma, I started to, to realize it. Like we could identify it as a stigma in culture in like 2011, 12, 13, in 2008, it was no different than 2000. Like it just was this, it was a conversation you didn't have basically, especially as a man. No, you're not depressed. Like my doctor told me, I think you have depression. I told him to fuck off. Like that was legitimately <laughs> in the doctor's office, my response. Cause it was like, no, I'm not weak. I mean, I can use all kinds of other expletive words to describe what it means to be soft as a guy especially as an athlete and it was like no 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 absolutely not it's just something i'll get through i'll just get through it just leave me alone just leave me alone like that's kind of how things were then and i mean it's still like that now but thankfully the tides are slowly shifting yeah and for you in 2011 your back was more against the wall i mean two more suicide attempts yeah like i I need to make a change and that's yeah i had no choice i I had no choice i was i was granted essentially a second chance at life and it was like okay let's just get healthy it wasn't like this this movie moment of like oh i mean i have tattoos all over my body about like this kind of second chance and i don't look at them every day and be like oh you're so lucky like, <laughs> it's not that i don't think anyone anyone that tells you it's like that is lying yeah it's just you kind of go okay this this is that kind of fight or flight in human nature like okay i just want to get healthy i realized i wasn't healthy. I got sick. I'm sick. Let's get healthy. That's kind of how I was able to, to go about it. In your article that you wrote for uh, the Huffington Post, yeah, basically just talking about how there's the goal of creating a culture where all pain and struggle is acceptable dialogue. So you mm-hmm. said talking about battles with mental health is no different than sitting around a table with your closest friends and reminiscing over why and how we have the scars on our body. But our scars in this case, yeah. real scars are, this was from a skiing wipeout, something like that. But mm-hmm. the scars you refer to are more of mental health battles with yeah, depression. Just, I think it's just something that, again, kind of like a dimmer switch, like it just kind of clicked with me at some point. I can remember growing up in Canada and I mean, every kid that grew up in Canada played hockey, you know, out on the outdoor rink or whatever. Or you had dumb things you did when you were 18 years old drinking. Yeah. I mean, where you fell or you did something stupid or like I grew up in the jackass generation. So it's like we watched jackass and we did those things. And you have these like scars that you would kind of tell a funny story about or even shit when you're dating, you you sit and talk about these things. And it was just, why can't we talk about things that you can't see? And I understand there's like, it's kind of like the Brene Brown, you know, vulnerability, you want to use it healthily. You just don't want to dive in and like, oh, this is everything about me that (laughs) I equate it to like, if you have a, a scar on your on your penis, like you're not going to be like, look at this one, right? Like you're not <laughs> going to dive into that right away. But eventually there's just something that like scars kind of tie us together because it's it's pain. We all hurt the same. What causes us to hurt, you know, and what causes us to heal can be different. But the feeling of pain is pretty transcendent across all of humankind. So why don't we let that connect us and like embrace that it can connect us. And I mean, I'm sure it's, it's cost me relationships and cost me friendships and cost me opportunities because I am too open about it, but I don't care. I don't really care. 
It's also saved lives, I'm sure. People can yeah, exactly. and If you want to, like, the, the cliche of that is, I literally said that in the hospital parking lot, like, this can't end with, to my dad, like, this can't end with us. And it is that cliche of, like, if this helps one person, then it was worth it. All the pain, all the suffering, and all the, like, struggle of talking about this and, like, trying to figure out the best way to tell a story about it and, like, connect, it, it's worth it. It's absolutely worth it it's hard to kind of explain that to someone like what that feels like. Cause you actually don't think about it. Like I've had messages over the years of people who've literally been like, I was, you know, gun in my mouth, ready to do it. And then, you know, I, I read your thing or this came up on YouTube and I stopped. I don't want to even let myself think about that. Cause it's like, that's too much. Like, Holy cow. Yeah. Wild to think because I was that person. There was online community back in the days of MySpace and that with to write love in her arms that kind of helped me and it connected me to this community, even though I still kind of got very close, it still connected me to this community. And it was like, I saw other people that were hurting too. And I felt less and less alone. And it's unbelievable what that does, how that can change you for the better. I don't think you fully understand how much it can change until you actually speak up and then start to see the feedback yeah. and what people's responses are. Yeah. Like I remember when I first started kind of talking about these things, like publicly, like coming out, if you will, in like 2012, there was an article written uh, in, in the Ottawa newspaper. And I spoke at a few high schools at the same time. And then national articles started coming out. But my family, extended family, cousins, aunts, uncles, like I was getting messages, emails, Facebook messages by my family members who are like, I'm so glad you're here, but I'm so glad you you spoke up about it because now I feel less alone. Like you're fucking family. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's like, oh, we gotta, we gotta work so that that is a conversation that you can comfortably have with your family in person and doesn't take a family member almost dying or dying by suicide to then prompt the family to talk about it. We're family, like that's where it starts. And I think that's kind of, probably what propelled me the most. And you said, I think this was in uh, the Man of More Words video, you said, you don't want to be standing alone on the rooftop of a building to realize that people love you. No, absolutely not. And I think just to go back to what I said, like if your family, if, as a family, if you're opening up with each other, that's where you, you need to experience love first and foremost. Because if you experience the love like from your family, you just know, you know your love. But it's the tough thing about this whole deal. Like I get questions all the time. Like, how do I help my teenager? Or how do I, how do I help someone love them? Like, it's that simple. But how yeah. do you love somebody, right? Yeah. Like, how do you love them in a way that is authentic and in a way that can help, but you're not forcing to help? Because at the end of the day, it's very similar to addiction. You know, an addict, you can love them to death, but doesn't mean they're going to put down the bottle, right? Like they need to want to. I needed to want to get better after I was hospitalized. If I didn't, if I was just like, whatever, I'll get through this and didn't do therapy, didn't start making changes, I'd be dead right now. Again, it goes back to why we have this conversation. So people will want to because they'll feel comfortable and they'll feel accepted to have these conversations because they won't feel alone. As a professional athlete, did you feel like it was more challenging to speak up? Had you just had a job at a nine to five, do you think that it would have been less of a challenge to start to talk about mental health? I don't know. I think it's actually the opposite. I think because I had this, again, I use the word very loosely, like celebrity, no one knew who I was in Canada, but because I had that job, I was given the platform. Yeah. If I was an accountant, 
no one would have given me the platform. So if you're not given the platform, what will propel you to talk? And I have experienced a lot over the years, people in just kind of like regular vocations saying like, I can't mention this because my job will be at risk. I was self-employed. I mean, I had no money to my name and I started working in construction after the fact. The only thing I was potentially risking was down the line sponsors, right? Like how Tiger Woods, you know, lost a lot of sponsors with his problems and what he's been through. That's the only thing I was really risking. And that's where it is more powerful that a lot of people in high places, because we, our culture looks up to celebrity. We look to celebrity to kind of set trends and set culture, right? Right. So they're doing it. It then makes us feel influencer culture, right? Like if an influencer talks about a, a new candy, the candy sold off the shelves mm-hmm. to like 14 year olds, but and I know this because of my like, like nephews, these nerds things, which is like came out a couple of weeks ago and it was like, they sold out, but it's the <laughs> same thing. I don't know if you're a YouTube, if Mr. Beast, like the biggest YouTuber on right. the planet is doing amazing things, but all of his videos are backed in like this service. He's doing YouTube so he can basically open up food banks. He's doing all of this stuff for good. And what is he then telling his audience? It's okay to care about other people. It's exactly that. And yeah, I think, again, that's probably why I went with it because I was given that opportunity and I was going to like sink or swim. I was going to figure it out as I went. My ego definitely embraced it because it was like, great, this gives me some attention. Maybe it helps pay some bills eventually and it helps me get a sponsor and da 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 da. Like, I, you still, I was still looking at it kind of egotistically and selfishly and probably jumped into the speaking world two years too soon because I wasn't fully healed. Yeah. And that's one thing that I do see and have seen is like people yeah, given a platform to talk. And that's the kind of cat, that's the double-edged sword, people given a platform to talk about it when they haven't healed yet. And that's scary because then they, then they could relapse or what they're projecting to an audience. It can trigger an audience as well. So like, that's the tough thing about this conversation is we need to know when we're healthy enough and secure enough and proud enough. I've always said, I'm very proud of what I've been through, but like proud enough to talk about it publicly outside of our family, I think. Yeah. Because that's the tough thing. And that's kind of what I said earlier, but like this vulnerability for the sake of vulnerability can actually be very detrimental. And that fear of like, it could lose you a job or whatever is a stigma, but it's also, it is kind of true because if you do just open it up all about it far too soon, to your workplace, to your wherever. And then you're not like, you're still like, in the midst of it. It's going to be really, really, really hard. And I know that firsthand because I was not healthy enough to like, I was healing, but I wasn't healthy enough for the pressure of reliving these things over and over and over again. Cause it was sending me back quite a bit until like 2014, 15, probably. What was your process of healing? And what does it mean to you to be fully healed to the point where you feel like you can speak on the matter? You have to be proud of it. Yep. I think it's a very weird thought or weird connection to think you're proud of what you've been through. Like, I'm not to say I'm proud. I tried to kill myself. Yeah. That's not it. But I'm proud of my struggles. I'm proud of what I went through and who I became on the other side and like what it's done. And it's not like, because people say, oh, you're so courageous. I don't think I'm courageous. I've just fully accepted who and what who I was then and what I went through and who I'm kind of becoming. Like I, we're always changing, we're always growing. And by accepting that, I'm always open to this process of growing and also understanding that my health is going to evolve with that too. And new things are going to be triggers, like new things, new patterns. If I don't 
keep up with my routine, if you will, of how I stay healthy because of a busy schedule. Or, I mean, you know, my wife and I built a house this year or the year before we got married. Like those are new things that I had never dealt with. And they were really hard to deal with emotionally because it's just like it was new foreign territory. But luckily I had set a lot of like processes and parameters in place to fall back on. The HuffPost article you referenced, like the second one I wrote, I, I make this analogy between like the way I look at my golf game. Like there's all these facets to your golf game and you can still kind of compete with a few, like a, I say, it's like a spoke, it's a wheel and there's these spokes to the wheel. And if one spoke is kind of bent and wonky, the wheel will still move. Two spokes, yeah, then, it, you know, three spokes starts to get kind of wobbly. And I looked at like at my golf game like that, like you can still compete with a few things, you know, one thing or two things that aren't kind of firing mental game, preparation, course, knowledge, drive, like all the areas of golf. But as they start to kind of devolve, if you're not staying on top of them, it's really hard to compete. And that's kind of how I looked at my health. It's like diet, sleep, alcohol intake, meditation, therapy, community. Like there's all of these things that tie into my health and they're, they're changing, they're evolving, but like one can come out, but it's replaced with something else. And when it came to golf, it's like, after the fact, it was kind of an evaluation process you would do with your coach or whatever. And it's the same thing I do with my health. And I've learned like a couple of years, like I did two years of speaking a lot, flying a lot, getting bad sleep, every speaking event, I'd be incredibly depressed for like two days afterwards because I got so high getting ready for this and like travel. It's so exciting. Then you're reliving these things. Then you're getting kind of a download of other people's shit. It's hard. It's like, it's heavy to deal with and read emails and try to be there for them. And then you travel and then it's like, you're not sleeping properly. And it's, but then I, I learned that, like I would, I kind of through journaling would see what would happen. So then I would kind of keep on top of it. And since I met Kelly, it's like the same thing. When, if I'm traveling, playing tournaments or filming or speaking, we know when I get back, okay, you need to kind of hit pause here because this is the first domino to fall to potentially, because then it can they can continue to fall and then you can be back in a dark place. And I've been in a dark place many, many times since 2011, but I don't freak out. You know, I, I know, I, I know how to get out of them, but I'm also very, very patient with the dark places, but patient with myself for that process. You're also in touch with yourself and self-aware enough to know. Yeah. The depressed person is incredibly self-aware. That's yeah. why we're like, that's what makes us so depressed because we're right. so hung up on ourselves, you know, inadvertently. So use that heightened sense of self-awareness to your strength, right? As opposed to like this crazy self-awareness, like belly button syndrome, where you're always kind of caught in about everything that's wrong. Use that self-awareness for, you know, a strength on how to progress in spite of it all. Totally. And the second part of that is the support system with your family and friends. Mm -hmm. When you do speak up, people are aware of it. You said your family, you know, yeah. now they obviously all know the struggles you've been through. Having those people to fall back on when you do fall into those depressed states exactly. is so important. And, and then you have this trusted little circle that knows what to look for. Just like I'd have a trusted circle on my golf game and my career, even now with YouTube, like I have like people I trust that can kind of say, you know, videos are getting crappy or you're getting lazy or whatever. I have a trusted few people that can see, like, I mean, even with my family being back in Canada, like if I haven't talked to my mom in weeks or she knows something's up, like, why are you like, you're kind of a little different now that I'm like, I am married and I have my wife to talk to all the time. But for those few years, like when I was still single, if I wasn't talking to my friends, even on the road and that, like they could kind of start to see and just like, Hey, what's up? I haven't heard from you. 
I don't care. You're not too busy. Like you, what's going on kind of thing. What was your process with healing aside from speaking up and just being self-aware? Was it therapy? What yeah. are some things that the listeners can take away if they're dealing with some type of depression? I mean, I started therapy right away, like literally like three days out, out of the hospital. I started therapy, but I also started like learning about depression. Mm. I took it upon myself to kind of get informed about this illness I have and learn things that trigger it, learn things that are good for you, things that are bad for you. And I mean, I have to kind of, I like beer. I like to drink, like not like, I like beer, like one or two. Like I like the taste of beer, like I'm a beer snob basically. Like I, I like my craft beer, but I have to learn to like curtail it. Cause if I'm drinking one, two beer, two, three beer a night, two, three days a week, it's going to have an effect on my brain. So I have to kind of be mindful of that. Same thing with diet, but my healing, like I learned these things and, and therapy obviously was a huge, huge thing for me. And I then I went back on medication two years after, like I was on medication and got off it right away out of the hospital. And then I went back on medication in 2013. And since then, and so I've been on medication now for seven years, it's been a trial and error. I've changed a few times. Like it's not going to be the same medication forever. Like you have to kind of be cognizant of those things. Right. And then a big thing that I started in 2015 was I started practicing mindfulness and, and meditation. And that has been, I mean, I had a, I had a couple stretches where it's like, I literally meditated every day for nearly two years. Right. I'm a little more kind of hit or miss with it now, but it's still one of those things. And, and Kelly all the time, like if I'm getting flustered or if I'm, she can see that I've had a kind of a rough couple of days. She's like, have you, have you meditated today? Like, just, just go spend some time. Like that's one thing that has been very, very, and that's one thing that I would, recommend to anyone mental health issues or, or struggles or not like meditation is something that is an incredibly beneficial practice for your your mind your body your relationships just so much you know you exercise your body as an athlete it's almost like exercising your mind taking the time for to sure. be quiet just with yourself and your thoughts Absolutely. not looking at your phone or watching tv or anything like that yeah like i mean it is one of those weird things like this world that we live in now is just so inundated with noise i mean my job is is basically being glued to my phone all the time and having the ability to take i guess luckily enough i i did grow up in a time before this kind of like i didn't really get into this hyper connection until i was 26 years old like 25 years old is when the world got like hyper connected mm -hmm. so i at least have memories of what it was like to drive in the car and listen to just music and like not actually looking at social media at every stoplight or anything like that. So I can remember what it was like to kind of have quietness and stillness. So I still try to find that those moments. It's still kind of hard. Yeah. Like it's, it's actually quite hard. It's crazy what a world we live in now. And especially given the, the state of the last 12 months, like trying to find stillness is really hard, but really, really beneficial because there's a lot of crap going on that can stress and make you so anxious and just make get out of your house really difficult if you're allowed out of your house, right? Like, and that's where I think mindfulness is a huge, huge like feather in anyone's cap. It's funny. I feel like the harder it is to find stillness, the more important it is to find stillness. Absolutely. Like, exactly. Yep. There's a book called Stillness is the Key by Ryan Holiday. That's like, yeah, I've read it a few times now. It's only a year or two old. It's so good because it's just about like these great people in history that prioritize that kind of calm, you know, moments in their day. And it's so important. Very important. You're an ambassador for Bell Let's Talk. Yeah. Bell Let's Talk Day is on January 28th. Did you want to just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's, it's, it's really weird this year, Bella's Talk Day, because so I, um, I've been an ambassador since, 
I think officially the, the 2015 one. I did a, a whole episode on a, on TSN 2014 for Bell at Stock Day for one of the sports show, but I wasn't on the team officially. I became, I joined the team literally like the next day. Okay. So yeah, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. Yeah, like it's, it's a lot now. And every year, um, it's like the whole country just stops and says, no, we're going to prioritize mental health. And I mean, the world gets behind it too. And celebrities tweet and it gets trending and it's raising a lot of money on that one given day. But the cool thing about Bell Let's Talk as an initiative is it's, it's money all year round. And mm-hmm. I've been so fortunate with this, my role with them, I've been able to literally travel the country and talk, but also present checks to places in, in the Maritimes. I've been to Yukon to present a check to the community there. And it's just, it's incredible seeing this corporate movement that it's a countrywide movement that's nearly $200 million in the last 10 years. Wow. It's crazy. And I mean, this year is, I guess, the start of the like, because the first kind of was going to be five years and then they extended it five more years and, and committed more money. And now it's like we're in the, a, a new like section of it. But it's very strange because I'm doing my Bell Let's Talk interviews and all that from my office here in Florida this year, which I hate. I actually hate <laughs> it because I miss I miss Canada every day. And Bell Let's Talk Day was always a time for me to, you know, spend a few days Either or not, like last year it was Ottawa, which was cool, which is where I'm from, but like to go back to where I'm from and and give back to this country that I love so much and just con- connect with Canadians and for lack of a better word, save lives. Like it's not to like pat myself on the back by any stretch, but it's just been an incredible, incredible thing. And I have the, the magnet right here on my light. It's just so weird that this year it's happening digitally. So it's so strange, but it's so interesting because... I'm just curious to watch the kind of the feedback and the result and what happens because it is the one thing I've noticed about this year. And I've done a couple of speaking events digitally. The engagement is through the roof compared to stuff that's in person because we have this anonymity right now to kind of ask questions, raise our hands, say me too, or whatever, but no one's around you. So like, it could be really, really cool what it does, how it can rally a country and, and the world to just talk, to open up, to destigmatize it, even if it's just through your phone and your, and your computer this year, not attending something or, or having to tell someone in person, because I mean, in Canada, a lot of people can't even spend time together in person. It's in certain provinces. It's tough. It's really, really tough. So it's going to be, it's going to be awesome. I'm pretty excited to just follow along from down here this year. Yeah. And hopefully with it being digital it reaches even more people. Exactly. Yeah. And you're not confined to just it being on, like if you, you know, on CTV or whatever, like literally people can access it anywhere now. Yes. I'll definitely be talking about it. I'll be posting it and cool, man. I'm excited to see everything that they get out there, but thank you for taking the time, Andrew. Really appreciate no, my it. My pleasure, man. I'm, I'm glad you, uh, you reached out and like, I can, I can talk forever. So yeah, maybe we could have a round two, uh, one of these days in the future. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to real men do cry. If you like what you heard, please follow and share with anyone else that may find value in the episode. Bell Let's Talk Day is tomorrow. Use the link in the show notes to spread the word, and the Bell Let's Talk Foundation will put money towards mental health initiatives. The podcast officially has an Instagram. Go follow at rmdc underscore pod for all updates on new episodes. Thanks again for listening. See you guys next week.